We are continuing our series through the Gospel of John. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 1, verse 14, where we'll be reading from the prologue, or the opening verses of John's Gospel. And this uh, prologue, which we'll officially finish next week, does what any good prologue should. It essentially sets up the story that follows by giving us privileged information. Uh, information that people didn't have when they encountered Jesus face to face. Some background facts that set up the story for us. And we'll need this information in order to understand the story that follows. Uh, in fact, uh, in Greek dramas, it was customary uh, to have a prologue in which vital information was given, which would enable the audience to, quote, comprehend the plot and understand unseen forces. That's what a prologue is. That's what it's designed to do. And few prologues on earth fulfill their purpose as powerfully as the one we are reading this morning. We pick up in chapter 1, verse 14, John writes this. He says, The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him. He cried out, saying, This is the one I spoke about when I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Out of his fullness we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made him known. Let's pray. Lord, as we sit in these verses this morning, I pray that you would come and speak to us, that we would sense the God who so longs to be with us that you came into humanity itself, that you would do um, anything to bridge that gap, to come to the place where we are, to meet with us, and to um, give us grace on top of grace already given. Lord, thank you for that reality that we come into your presence based on uh, the grace and truth that comes from you and not out of our own uh, reputation or our own moral striving or anything else, but we just come into the light of your presence, come into the light of your grace, freely enjoying what it is that you are determined to pour out freely but at great cost to yourself. We honor you, Jesus, for what you've done, for what we'll be contemplating this morning. And I pray it would be real, Lord, that they wouldn't be just sort of uh, ideas bouncing around in our heads, but that it would be uh, a living truth giving birth to, to a living relationship with you. Would you come now in your presence, in your peace, and meet with us here. In Jesus' name, 
Amen. In the year 66 AD, roughly 30 years after Jesus' resurrection, a disillusioned Jewish population began attacking and killing Roman soldiers and Roman citizens who were inhabiting their country. As a result, Rome punished the Jewish population, killing some of the Jewish leaders and priests, and even sacking the temple, claiming that the money was for Caesar. But rather than putting the Jewish population in its place, uh, their, quote, punishments had the opposite effect. Uh, different factions of Judaism who had been in conflict and even uh, war with one another all united in an effort to expel the Romans from Jerusalem. And as a united force, they succeeded. Uh, all the Romans were expelled from Jerusalem, and this united Jewish army won several major battles against the Roman Empire in the war that followed. But eventually, after years of fighting with Rome and returning to their fight against one another at the same time, finally, their defenses cracked and Rome conquered Jerusalem. When they finally took the capital city, which the Jews thought was impossible, the full fury of Rome fell upon it. The temple, which had been the center of Jewish faith and religion, was destroyed, completely leveled, and the Jews who were there were either killed or scattered. It is hard to capture the impact that this would have had on the Jewish people. All of a sudden, they found themselves without a temple and without a nation. And when it became clear that there would be no counter-revolution, that they would not overthrow Rome a second time, that they would not rebuild a nation or rebuild the temple, then what set in the impact of that realization was truly devastating them. The temple was so vital that people wondered if Judaism could even exist without it. And historians at that time said the Jews who, the last Jews who were in Jerusalem before the temple was destroyed were the last Jews to ever live on earth. They could not conceive of a Judaism outside or after the temple. Uh, they did not know what would become of the Jewish people. How would they meet with their God? The temple was uh, the place of God's presence manifested on earth. It was the meeting place between God and his people, between heaven and earth. And its destruction represented the loss of God's presence and perhaps even the end of God's people. It was in the midst of this crisis that John picked up his pen to write. And this is what he says. He says, The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us, and we have seen His glory. 
Now, it may not be immediately obvious to us, but what John is doing here is using temple language. He says that, quote, God made his dwelling among us. And this phrase, uh, skeno in the Greek, uh, it literally means that he pitched his tent or he tabernacled among us. So if you're tracking with the prologue, John is shifting from Genesis language of eternity and light and life and creation into Exodus language. Back when God freed the Israelites from slavery and formed a covenant with them at Mount Sinai, he uh, instructed them to build a tabernacle, which we have a picture of. And this tabernacle was basically a really, really nice tent. It was a, a temple tent, a place where he would come and meet with his people. Uh, and later, the tent of meeting and the tabernacle were replaced by the temple that Solomon ultimately built in Jerusalem. And if you go back to the Old Testament and read the accounts of the construction of this tabernacle or later the temple in Jerusalem, in both cases, as soon as it was finished and it was sort of consecrated, the um, visible manifest presence of God filled those spaces. In fact, it's filled those spaces to the point where people could not enter them. It was, it was full of just the, the weight and glory of God that, that filled the spaces that had been built. Uh, and this, this word for a glory, the glory that filled the tabernacle, the glory that filled the temple, uh, in Hebrew is the word Shekinah. You may have even heard the phrase Shekinah glory used before. Well, the, the Shekinah was the, the visible, manifest presence of God in a specific place on earth. So in a single phrase, John is saying that the, uh, that the Logos, the Word, the eternal Son of God, became flesh and, quote, pitched His tent or tabernacled among us and we have seen His glory, His, his Shekinah, the manifest presence of God. It's no longer bound to the temple in Jerusalem. It's, it's unleashed. It's set loose upon the world. The new temple or dwelling place of God's presence and glory is no longer a building, John is saying. It's a person. The person of Jesus is the new temple, the new tabernacle, the new meeting place between God and his people, between heaven and earth, which is why Jesus was able to stand up in front of the crowd and say, destroy this temple and I will build it again in three days. What's the temple that Jesus is referring to? What's the meeting place between heaven and earth, between God and his people? Where does the Shekinah glory dwell? He's saying it's Jesus. It's in and through Jesus. Jesus is replacing the temple 
as the new center for God's new creation people. You have to understand that the temple and the law were the center of the universe for the Old Testament people of God. And in a few short verses, John is upending the entire thing. He's saying Jesus is actually the creator God from Genesis. It was through him and for him. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. He is the creator God uh, from Genesis. He is the new tabernacle from the Exodus. He is the new temple that we read about in the rest of the Old Testament. He came to judge and replace the temple that was there. He's the culmination of the prophets. The one whom John the Baptist and the others were anticipating and pointing toward. Uh, the, The one that they prophesied about. And he even, John says, replaces the law. He says, for the law was given through Moses, John writes, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. That's Genesis, Exodus, all the law and the prophets summed up and fulfilled in Jesus in the course of a few short verses. John has covered the entire sweep of Jewish history and theology, placing Jesus at the center. This is a stunning claim, but not only is he uh, almost redefining the Jewish faith, centering it around Jesus, in a sense he's doing something equally profound and challenging to their very concept of God. What is God? Who is God? What is he like? That concept is being challenged from the very opening verses of John. So in a sense, uh, he is uh, recentering, recalibrating the, the Jewish faith around Jesus, but he's doing something equally challenging to, to who God is. You have to try to imagine, if you can, uh, that you're a good Jewish boy or girl that your life, that your faith is built around God himself, and that multiple times a day you stop what you're doing to pray the great Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Multiple times a day. This is the center of your life, is this concept of who God is. So there is one God and he's given us the law and he's given us and he's come to dwell with us in the tabernacle and ultimately in the temple there's one god he created the universe he's given us these things in order that we might meet with him and know him and follow him we're to worship him and none other there's a sharp line between creator and creation and then you have to imagine that into that world comes the Jesus movement. And and they come along and say, actually, all of that is done. Jesus replaced the temple. He's fulfilled the law and the prophets. The law and the temple are no longer the center of the universe. In fact, 
they are now irrelevant. You can set them aside. And in case that isn't enough, we need to talk to you about this creator God that you worship. He is the creator and he is one, but not in the way that you anticipated. Not in the straightforward way that you had envisioned. He's not just one, he's actually three and one at the same time. So not only does John sort of recenter Jewish faith and history around Jesus, he also redefines their concept of God. It's still good Jewish monotheism, meaning one God, but now with Jesus at the center. John comes along and in his very first verse, he says there's actually a logos, an eternal word of God that is with God, meaning distinct from him so that he can be with God, but at the same time, the logos is God. That's verse one. You're thinking, okay, I, I think I get that. Maybe. But then in the verses we read this morning, he elaborates. He goes deeper. He says this word is actually the Son who came from the Father. So all of a sudden, God is Father and God is Son. No one has ever seen God, John writes, verse 18. But the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. You have to understand how mind-blowingly difficult this must have been for the first disciples. We've got God, and God is one. We know that. We, we've been praying about it since birth. Like We know from Scripture that that's the case. But now you're calling him Father, and you're saying there's a son and that they are distinct enough from one another to be in relationship. We can look in some sense and say there is father and there is son. They're distinct enough to say that. And yet at the same time, they are both 100% eternal God. Neither of them made the other. Neither of them is dependent on the other. Uh, they are both God. God is one. But we can also say that they are, quote, in closest relationship with one another. So, so what do you do with that? How is the word with God and the word is also God at the same time? This would have been very difficult to comprehend as a first century Jew, or maybe just as a human being. Are, are you saying there are two gods? No. But there are two persons, and they are, quote, in closest relationship with one another. 
And at the risk of getting ahead of ourselves, John will soon introduce the Holy Spirit, who is also distinct from Father and Son, but also God. Now, to be clear, there is nothing in the Old Testament that says that this can't be the case. But there was also very little in the Old Testament that would anticipate this being the case. This is a shocking revelation about the nature of God. And in fact, much of what we would call the doctrine of the Trinity comes from the Gospel of John. He never uses the word Trinity. In fact, none of the biblical authors do. But he ushers us in inescapably. He ushers us into this mystery of a three-in-one God. Father, Son, and Spirit are all part of the same divine will. And their relationship is, is so close, so comprehensive, so complete, that they are in fact one. That all that... Th Think, it's really hard to think about the Trinity, I think. But, but if you think about it, all that is Father is found in Son. This is how close they are. All that is Son is also found in Father. All that is Father is found in Spirit. All that is Spirit is found in, and so on and so on. They, they are so comprehensive, bound to one another that we say, there is, there is one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. The Lord is one. And it is this incredible mystery, this three-in-one God, who has come to meet with us. He's come, John says, in flesh and blood. Uh, the part of God that we call Son, uh, or the Logos, came to reveal God's nature to us. And we're told that the sun is the radiance of God's glory. Think Shekinah. It's the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Meaning he didn't leave anything out. When you see Jesus, you're seeing the Logos. And when you see the Logos, you're seeing the Father. Ian Calloway says it this way. He says, The Word that is God became God in human flesh. Everything that is God was brought into human existence in the person of Jesus. God didn't stop being God when he came as Jesus. Jesus is not the light, fat-free God. Nothing was subtracted when God became flesh. It does not say that a bit of God became flesh. The Word became flesh. God wasn't subtracted. Humanity was added. Not for nothing is Jesus called Emmanuel, which means God with us. And I think that this is hard for us to grasp, even as followers of Jesus. On the one hand, we can slip into thinking that the grumpy father 
set, sent his really kind son to come and meet with us, right? We, we end up uh, assuming that there's a significant variant between father and son, that the father is one way and that Jesus comes to us in meekness as something very different than that. And we can sort of separate them in our minds. On the other hand, we can slip back into thinking uh, that something was lost in the incarnation. That when the logos or the word or the eternal son became flesh, that, that maybe most of what was God was left behind. And, and yet, John insists that father and son are one, that when you're seeing one, John says, you're actually seeing the other at the same time. There is no significant variant between them. They, they are one. And he makes it clear that the miracle of the first Christmas is not that God left his character or divinity behind when he became flesh. Rather, the miracle is that he clothed all that he is in humanity, in human flesh, in human weakness. In fact, John says that the word became flesh. Uh, and the Greek phrase that John uses for flesh is sarks. And it's a rather uh, raw, kind of shocking word in the Greek. Uh, he doesn't use the word anthropos, man, or soma, body, but he chooses the almost crude term of sarks or flesh because he's driving the point home. The all-powerful, pre-existent logos has come to us not riding on the clouds, enthroned in glory and power, with nations and mountains and trees bending at his majesty. Rather, when he came, when he advented, when he appeared, when he pitched his tent, when he tabernacled among us, it was in full human weakness and vulnerability. He was fully divine, fully the Logos, fully reflective of the Father in a comprehensive way. Nothing was lost in that. But in the very same moment, he was fully human. Not just appearing in the general shape and outline of a human. Saying, no, he was fully human in the sarks, in the flesh, with all the frailty and weakness that that entails. He ate and slept and breathed and bled like we do. He felt the emotions that you feel. He was tempted by the things that you are tempted by. He was hurt by many of the things that you've been hurt by. He knows. This is absolute foolishness to the Greeks. But it's the beauty of God to us. He knows. He knows what it's like to be human. He knows what it's like to be you. And this hit me in a fresh way last week when I was struggling with prayer. That's right, even pastors struggle with prayer. 
I make a regular discipline of praying, and because I can't like sit still when I, while I'm doing that for long periods of time, I prayer walk uh, on a very regular basis. I kind of just build that in to my day. And there are seasons in which that is a, that is a very a passionate, spirit-filled thing where it's full of God's presence and it just flows and it's almost effortless. And I just, I can't wait to get out and just be with God and pray. And there are other seasons when it is not like that at all. When it is dry and dull and boring and difficult. And, and last week, or maybe over the last few weeks, it's been one of those seasons where it's just been very difficult, where I'm hitting a wall. And a lot of the prayers I've been praying very consistently have not been answered. And I just say, Lord, why am I doing this? Like, I don't, I don't want to do this today. I don't, I don't want to pray. Like, here I am, I'm going to do it. I just don't, I don't really want to. And, and it's in the midst of this slump that I stumbled uh, upon these words in a book by Pete Gregg, who's the founder of the global 24-7 prayer movement. And he says this. He says, There are definitely days when I'd prefer a set of personal superpowers to slogging away at the slow, confusing business of prayer. God knows that we don't always find it easy to string a sentence together in his presence. He remembers, as the psalmist says, that we are dust. He understands that we sometimes get tongue-tied, distracted, overwhelmed, and confused. He doesn't get insecure if we occasionally doubt his existence. Next slide. He sees our bruised and broken hearts and accepts that prayer hasn't always seemed to help. He, hit, he isn't in the least bit annoyed that we occasionally find talking to him a bit boring. Man, I read those words and something in me just broke. I realized, oh my gosh, he knows. Of course he knows. Like he, he knows what I'm wrestling with. He knows what it's like to be human. And, and it's okay. He, he knows what it's like to be, to be me, and he wants to be with me. He's not ashamed. He's not insecure. He's not embarrassed. He's not condemned. No, he knows. Hebrews says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. Let that sink in for a minute. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, in the sarks, in the flesh, in human vulnerability and weakness. In light of all this, he's saying, let us approach God's throne with, of grace with confidence so that we may find mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. I'll go ahead and invite the worship team back up. But as we come to him this morning, let's, let's bring what we have, let's bring who we are in full confidence of his grace because the inexpressible, inexhaustible, 
infinite God, the Word became, became flesh, became frail humanity, and pitched His tents among us. He tabernacled in a human body. That's how His glory was manifested, rescuing us from sin and death. But in the process, He knows. He knows what it's like to be human. He knows what it's like to struggle in life, to struggle in faith, to struggle in prayer. He knows. He knows what it's like to be you. So whatever it is that you're up against this morning, whatever your struggle is, we can come with confidence before the word that became flesh. We don't have to hide any of ourselves. We don't have to make excuses. We don't have to cover it up or pretend it's not there because he already knows. He's not embarrassed. He's not ashamed. He welcomes us into his presence. Let's pray. Lord, we stand before you now in awe of who you are. In awe of the incomprehensible God, the three-in-one God, we will never fully grasp. Even if you could enlarge our capacity to understand by two or three or ten or a hundred or a thousand times the capacity we have now, we would get a lot more, but we would never fully comprehend you. So we stand in awe before you, Lord. We come to uh, worship the one who we will never fully understand, and yet in the same breath, the miracle of Christmas is that we know you now. We will never fully comprehend you, but we know you in all the ways that, that we need to know you. Because you chose to, to step out of your heavenly place, to step out of eternity and into time, to step out of heaven and into sarks, flesh, with all of, the, with all of its pain, with all of its confusion, with all of the, the suffering and frailty and woundedness that is life in a fallen world. Jesus, you were, you were there. You've been there. You know. So as we come before you now, gosh, Lord, there's so many things that, that we could think about. But we, we, one of them is just the word becoming flesh. So this miracle happened that allows us to know you and it actually allows you to know us. No other God, real, false, imagined, pretend, no other God has done what you have done. There's no other God that can dwell in unapproachable light and that look into our hearts this morning and say, I know because I've been there. I know because I've been there. It's 
in that context that we surrender to you this morning, Jesus. We worship you. Would you come? Would you draw near to us? You say that you're, you're gentle and you're meek and you're humble and your burden is light and we can come to you. As frail, bruised, broken humanity, we can come to you. As we continue to celebrate what you've done, Scripture goes on to say, the New Testament goes on to say that there's yet another new temple. That as you stepped into humanity, you became God's temple. You became the meeting place between God and his people, between heaven and earth. And yet as you ascended to heaven, to the right hand of the Father, you sent the Spirit. The glory of God, the presence of God into the world. You say there's yet another temple, and it's us. The temple is not a place that we visit, that your glory and presence are out there. You say, no, no, no. Don't you know that you are the temple through the Holy Spirit? You are the temple for God's presence. How much more so when you come together? So, Jesus, we receive you now. We receive your presence in the midst of this temple that is your living, breathing church. And we pray that you would come and meet with us in your humility and your gentleness right where we're at this morning with what we're up against. In Jesus' name. Yeah.